You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Are you well? You look good. You look good. Good job. My name is John. I'm the I serve as the pastor of Liturgy and Sunday Environments here at Grace Point Church Northwest, and I'm excited to be with you this morning, especially we continue our current series through uh, selected psalms that we've entitled Vintage Songs, Modern Message. For the summer, we've paused our study through the gospel according to John, and we've taken some time in the psalms, and this morning we will be looking at Psalm 95. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm 95. My goal this morning is to help make sense of this psalm both practically and relationally, especially in regards to three questions. Three questions, and and those questions are, what is worship? Why should we worship God? And why do we worship God the way we do here at Grace Point Church Northwest? Um, Before we dive into the text and those questions, I think it would be wise of us to, to take some time just to pray and ask God to prepare our hearts for this text. Would you join me in prayer? God, we love you and you are so good. Um, You're so powerful. You created all things. You're in control, yet you love us individually and intimately, and we thank you for that. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, and we ask, God, that you would would soften our hearts to a greater understanding of the gospel, Lord, that you would stir our affections for Jesus, that we would leave here not only worshiping with our our head and our hearts, but also with our hands, that you would uh, lead us to opportunities of obedience to your word. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, for you are my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Do you know anybody who is truly a bad driver? And maybe it's a wife or a husband, a coworker, or a friend, um, but not just like a little bit over the speed limit or rolling through a stop sign. I'm talking about someone that is truly bad, someone who, whose driving instructor was most likely uh, blind, or they have a relative that works at the DMV, is the only way that they would have gotten their license. Now, I'm not going to point any fingers, but I definitely have some of those people in my life. And, and well, there's a reason why I drive when my wife's in the car. Um, she said it was okay for me to say that. It's all good. <laughs> have you heard of these um, self-driving cars, though? Like, they're all over the place. Anybody have? No? Okay. She has it. I know you do. Um, I'm, but I'm sure you've heard of them. I mean, they're all over TV. They're all over the news. There's reports of them being fully functioning sooner rather than later. I mean, how nice would that be, right? To sit in your car. I don't know if I could let go <laughs> the control aspect, but you just sit in the car, you put in the GPS coordinates, and you, you get to where you're going. And here's the point. You sit back, you relax, and autopilot takes over. This reminds me of a couple of weeks ago when my wife, Stacy, and I went. I was surprising her with a date. It's not very often that that happens with three kids under five, but I surprised her with a date night, and she had no idea we were, where we were going, and so we get in the car, and, and well, I began to drive. Now, some of you might be surprised to hear that I'm not the best multitasker. I try, and I pretend, and I think as I've gotten older, the less I've been able to multitask, but one of the areas of weakness for me is when I'm in the car and I'm driving and, and trying to focus on driving and focus on the conversation. It's either one or the other. And usually what happens is I'll miss a, uh, a, a turn or the off-ramp and, and, and I'm focusing on what the person's saying. And so this, this back, so back to our date, like any other time, we're, we're doing what we do best. I'm driving and my wife is talking and, 
And so autopilot kicks on, and I'm listening to her talk, and I'm paying attention, and all of a sudden, autopilot takes me, and we end up into the parking lot of my office. It was the funniest date that we ever been on. She goes, are you serious? And I go, oh, I'm sorry, I was paying attention to the conversation. But this is a lot like life. We head out for a destination only to be distracted by life's conversations, only be rerouted by the roadblocks of life. How awesome would it be for us to enter in the coordinates, the GPS coordinates for life's destinations without thinking about it, without engaging our head and our hearts. Autopilot would just take you where you want to go. But let's, let's just be honest, life isn't like that, is it? See, the autopilot of our hearts are prone to wander. Our hearts have the inclination not to, what we, not to pursue what we were meant for or made for, but we turn away from the destinations our souls were designed for. You can't simply turn on autopilot and cruise through life because you'll drift. You'll take a wrong turn. You'll end up in the parking lot of your office like I did. The reality is that we're all prone to wander. We're all prone to turn from the very source of joy, peace, hope, rest, acceptance, and grace, all of which can only be found in the presence of God. But still, we, we, we try and we attempt to find all of these good things in empty sources. See, whether or not you would consider yourself a Christian, if you're a human, you were created to find fulfillment in God and in Him alone. The problem is that from the beginning, we see in Genesis chapter 3 that our autopilot, our hearts are infected with this disease that we call sin. And as a result of this, our hearts are prone to wander, prone to turn away from the very source that we long for, the very source that we need. And Psalm 95 invites us into this tension. At the core of this psalm is the invitation to experience fullness of life in the presence of God, all while warning us that, hey, your hearts, by default, they're prone to turn away from God. They're prone to head not towards God, but we're prone to wander. But before we dive into Psalm 95, we need to lay some groundwork, and it begins with our first question, what is worship? What is worship? What comes to your mind when I ask this question? What is worship? Now, for most of us, if we're, to be honest, what comes to mind is maybe music, singing, uh, the stirring of emotions, maybe a personal experience. And, and I want to make the case this morning that worship, though it includes all those things, it includes music, it includes singing, it ex- includes uh, maybe some personal experiences, maybe even it includes the stirring of emotions. And I'm going to argue that those are all part of it and, and really important However, it's about more. Worship is more holistic. It's about everything, and it includes every part of who we are. I think that worship can seem a little ambiguous. It can seem vague. And the truth is that if we look to Scripture, it's actually not. It's pretty clear. And so let's begin with a working definition this morning of what worship is. So if you're a note-taker, go ahead and take out a pen and paper and pull it out. And if you're not a note-taker, go ahead and take out that pen and paper, and write down this definition. Biblical worship is the full life response, head, heart, and hands to who God is and what He has done. Biblical worship is the full life response, head, heart, and hands to who God is and what He has done. Let's look at verse 1 of Psalm 95. You guys doing okay? Yeah? Cool. 
says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with song and praise. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Immediately, we see a repetitious invitation in these three verses. I went from verses one to two down to six. Sorry, I didn't say that. One, two, and six. We see a repetitious invitation to come before God and worship him. Verses 1, 2, and 6, we see this word, come. However, in the original text, in, we, we see three different Hebrew phrases that are actually translated into our English word, come. And each of those phrases, they speak to a, an intimate invitation, a special invitation by God to us to come into his presence and worship him. This is an invitation to wonder, an invitation to experience joy and rest and peace this is an invitation to worship. And notice the, the emotions surrounding these invitations. Emotions such as joyfulness. Let us make a joyful noise. We also see the emotion of gratitude in verse 2. This invitation to come into his presence with thanksgiving, with gratitude. And this all speaks to the fact that God, he wants us to know who we are and the manner in which we are to worship him. God wants, to know, wants us to know who we are and the manner in which we are to worship him. Him. And the place that he begins, the place that he starts is with our hearts, a joyful heart, a thankful heart. He's speaking about our emotions and the truth that worship, it should engage our emotions, that God is invoking and he's stirring things within us. Now, I want to be extremely clear here. Uh, most of us approach the way we worship with with the mentality that worship is personality-driven. For example, maybe you're thinking, well, John, I don't really express my emotions. I'm not that type of guy, or I'm not that type of gal. I'm a quiet person. I'm not overly expressive. And, and, or, John, yeah, that makes sense. I'm loud. I express myself. And so, you know, emotions make sense. And we begin, when we do that, we begin to gauge the way we worship based on our personality. And listen to me, there is no grading system in Scripture on, upon how we emotionally respond to God, but there is a hope that when we would gather together for the hour and 20 minutes or so on a Sunday morning, that we would do so, that we would do so asking that God would stir our affections and love towards Him, that we would do so asking that, that we would grow in a greater understanding of God, and as a result, our emotions would be stirred towards Him, that He would create in us joyful hearts gracious hearts, thankful hearts. God, would you stir my heart within me? And I think that for some of us, maybe this, we're afraid of this, emotions. And here's why. As I think sometimes we can compare emotional responses or emotions to juvenile behavior. That to be emotional is a sign of, of immaturity. Something that's not to be pursued. But notice the psalmist here is saying, Essentially, hey, before we get into anything else here, before we establish what this is all about, you need to understand that the gospel moves people. The gospel produces in you joyful hearts, thankful hearts. A right understanding of who God is moves us. Let's be honest, though. I don't know about you, but there's times when I come on a Sunday morning and, and I'm not feeling very joyful, and I'm not feeling particularly thankful. Anybody else? Just me? Yeah, like, that, that's just to be real. That's, that's how it is. 
And if that's you, I have some good news. God's not saying, hey, fake it. That's not what he's saying. God's not asking us to put on an emotional show. And he, but rather, he gives us some instructions. Look back at verse 6. He gives us some instructions. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. The psalmist here is saying, look, if you don't feel joy, if you're not feeling particularly thankful right now, there's something that you can do to engage your heart. You see, this invitation to worship, to bow down, to kneel, it's not simply speaking of a posture of the heart, but it, rather it's simply talking about a physical posture, kneeling, physically bowing down. And, and, and here's what I think that he's, he's referring to, that sometimes in order for us to engage our hearts and our emotions, we need to engage our body physically. See, the Hebrew word for worship used in this text literally means to bow down, to lay prostrate before God. And there's something about being in the presence of God that ought to lead us to a visceral, emotional experience of joy, wonder, awe, of thanksgiving, of shouts of praise, of humility, reverence, and awe. And we see in verse 6, when it comes to worship, posture is important. Posture is important. For example, when I kneel to pray, or if I raise my hands when I sing, I might not feel desperate in that moment. But I kneel to pray because I know that I am desperate. I raise my hands because I know that I am desperate in need of a Savior. The posture of kneeling helps my heart get to a posture of dependence and need. And I remember my place before God. That I have nothing in and of myself that is impressive to God, but rather I come to Him in need of His grace, in need of His mercy, His love. And so I kneel before the Lord, our God and our Maker, because He is worthy. He is worthy. See, sometimes our physical posture can be a way that we can engage our hearts and our emotions. But still, the reality is this. You can't coerce emotions. You can't self-generate emotions. We can't just try harder to be joyful, right? Just, just try harder. Good luck. Be more thankful. What's wrong with us? But rather, that's not what the psalmist is asking us to do. You see, the working definition involves our hearts. It also involves our heads and our minds. And, and so worship's not only engaging our emotions, but he continues, which leads us to question number two. Why should we worship God? Why should we worship God? See, the psalmist is saying, all right, it includes your emotions, but it also includes your mind. And look at verse three. It says, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. These three verses tell us true things about who God is and what he has done. And this word for in verse 3 is the reason, it is the ground for which we have been invited to worship. The substance of our joy, the substance of our gratitude is the fact that God is good, that God is king above all gods. There is no one like God. There's no one that can compete against him. There's no equal to him. There's no one that can challenge him. God is, is king above all. In verse 4 again, in his hand is the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Everything belongs to God. He created it, and he holds it in his hand. 
Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. And all of these things, all the things that we look at that seem so deep, all the things that we look at that seem so big to us, are small to God. God simply holds them in His hand, which speaks to this truth, that God is in control. God is in control. He is sovereign. However, despite these truths that God is above all and He created all and is in control of all, in verse 3, if you pull up verse 3, there's a word that says that He's the God above all gods, and it's gods with a little g. And it speaks to the truth that there are spiritual powers that are active in this world, that are, draw, that are working to draw our hearts away from God and, and, and to give our, allegiances to the, our allegiance to lesser things. It's the idea, it's the truth that you and I, we, we look to other things, relationships or other things to fulfill us. We look to other things, created things for life and substance. You see, you and I, we are never engaged in a neutral act, ever. There's never a point in which what we are doing is neutral. We are always worshiping. We're always worshiping something. Look back, or actually, uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31, I'm reminded of this text. It'll be up on the screen. You don't have to turn from Psalm 95. I'm reminded of this. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, whatever you do, Whatever, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Everything is an opportunity to worship God. In everything we do, we are either worshiping God or we're worshiping something else. There is no middle ground here. I am a person who likes to think in the gray area. My wife is someone who's more black and white. However, this is a black and white situation. There's no middle ground here. You're either worshiping God or you're worshiping something else. And in everything we are doing, we are worshiping. We're doing it for the glory of something. And God is saying here, in everything you do, worship me. Do it for my glory. Everything matters. Every detail of our life, every part of our personality, how we think, how we behave, how we are motivated, every part of our life is meant to live under submission to and surrender to and worship to God. From the very basics of life, eating and drinking, the First Corinthians text says. Eating and drinking is the very basics. From that moment to fill in the blank, whatever you do, do for the glory of God. Whatever you do, whether it's at your job or, or at school, parenting, even changing diapers for the glory of God. Whatever you do, fill in the blank, watching TV, it, it, whatever you're doing, are you doing it in a way that you recognize who God is, what he's done, and you do whatever you do in a way that brings honor and glory to God? Because the truth is, we are always worshiping something. And this is a narrative that you'll see all throughout Scripture From the beginning of time until now, it's the narrative that God's people have been and are always idolaters. We see this in the Old Testament, we see this in the New Testament, and we see it every day in our own lives. I know I I do. Where we take possessions, we take dreams, we take ideals, we take relationships, and we look to them to complete us, to fulfill us. And given the chance, we will trade worshiping God for worshiping something else every time. And the reason why we run to these things is because we believe that these things will 
give us life, will fulfill us. It's the reason why we stop enjoying the good gifts that God has given us. It's the reason why some of us are so consumed for, uh, to, to succeed in our field of work or to succeed academically. And we're wrecked when those goals are not met. It's the reason why our relationships are hurting because we're crushing our, our kids under the weight of our worship or we're crushing our spouse under the weight of our worship. And they were never meant to carry that weight, only God and God alone. It's the reason why folks are wrecked when the candidate that they voted for is not elected or our hope, our joy, our love, our peace, everything is wrapped. It's wrapped up in ultimately what we are worshiping. I'm reminded of a, of a famous quote by an old guy named Calvin that says, the human heart is a factory of idols. That our heart is a factory of idols. The truth of the matter is this, everyone is always worshiping. You see, the question is, is not, are you worshiping? The question is, what are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? And often the answer is found that we are worshiping the wrong thing. And verse three, back to verse three, is telling us that God is above. He is supreme to all these other things. He created them. He rules over them. In fact, he designed them to give us a glimpse, a foretaste of his joy, of his peace, of his love, of his acceptance, of his rest. Anything in creation that brings us any ounce of joy is simply there to point us to him, not to replace him. So worship, it does not only engage our emotions, but it also engages our minds. They have to work together. It begins with understanding who God is and what he has done. A right understanding of who God is. See, emotions without substance can be shaken. You see, if they're not rooted in the truth of who God is and what he has done, it could fall apart. But however, if our emotions are rooted in, in the truth of God's word, it will lead us to emotional intelligence. And now the opposite is true as well. If the truth of who God is and what he has done does not evoke an emotional response in you, I will argue that maybe you don't know God the way you think you do. I love what uh, Pastor Tim Keller says about verses 3 through 5. He says, The psalmist is thinking, reckoning, weighing, calculating, counting, treasuring the excellencies of God until there is an explosion of emotion that leads to life change. It begins with a correct theology. It begins about knowing rightly about who God is and what He has done, which leads our hearts to explode with joy and gratitude, and it leaves us to live a life of obedience and dependence upon God. This is why we're so particular about the songs that we sing here on a Sunday morning. That's why we're so particular, because the words we sing need to be proper in describing our great God, because that's what's going to stir our hearts that leads us to obedience. The psalmist continues. Look, look at verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God and we are the people. What in the world does that mean? That He is our God and we are His people. Well, it means that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you surrendered your life to Him and accepted His perfect life, His substitute on the cross, if you are following Him, it means that you've been bought with a price, that you are not your own, that your only hope in death and life is that you belong to God. That's what that means. He continues, verse 7, for He is our God. That was for free. It just 
throwing it out there. <laughs> For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. And since we belong to him, there must be a determination that today, today, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts. And he points us to a historical moment in Scripture, as at Meribah, on the day at Massa in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. The psalmist here is referencing the time when the people of God, though they had seen God's amazing work, they still chose not to, to listen. They still chose to turn away from God. And the result of their disobedience was hardened hearts. They became desensitized to the moving of God in their lives. When we do not obey God's word, our hearts begin to callous. It's like my fingers on my left hand from playing guitar. I basically have leather pads on my fingers. If I were to touch my baby with this hand, I can't feel the softness of her skin because it's calloused. In a similar way, when we do not obey God, our heart begins to harden and we begin desensitized to the moving of the Spirit in our lives. And in the text here, he's saying, if you hear His voice, listen, obey. The point is this, church, if we hear God's voice, listen, obey. You see, worship does not simply engage our hearts and our minds, but it engages our hands. It compels us to obedience. It's not worship until we kneel, submit, and obey. It's not enough to simply know all the right things about God. It's not enough to be moved emotionally if it does not lead us to life change. I'm reminded of Mark chapter 12 when Jesus was asked, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And he responds in verse 30. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Again, biblical worship is the full life response, heart, hands, and head to who God is and what he has done. We are to love God. We are to worship God with every part of our being. You see, maybe you're able to sit down with these truths of God. Maybe you, you, can, you can list them all out. The truth that God created the heaven and earth. That God created everything, including us, and he called his creation good. But man, we sinned against God by not trusting that God is good. And as a result, death entered the world and we're now deserving of God's eternal wrath. But God, but God provided a way for the salvation of his people by sending his son Jesus. And Jesus lived the perfect life of obedience, a life that we cannot live and we've chosen not to live. And Jesus went on the cross and he traded places with us. Jesus received the eternal wrath of God that you and I deserve. And we were credited the perfect life of obedience that he lived. And Jesus did not stay dead, but he rose on the third day, conquering sin, conquering death. And now Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, praying for us, leading us in worship. And Jesus promises to return again for his people. That's good news. Maybe you can sit there and you can list these truths from God's word. You might be able to believe in your mind. But if your inner being is not captivated by those beauty, those beautiful truths of the gospel... If you don't fill your heart and your throat when you recognize the wrath that we deserve, but rather we can stand before God who is holy and just and he doesn't see our sin, but he sees the perfect life of obedience that Jesus lived on our behalf. If you can merely intellectually assent, if you, if you give mere intellectual assent to these truths of the scripture and there's nothing in you that fills any of it, then I would argue that you're not yet worshiping. And maybe you're thinking, John, I told you earlier 
that I'm not an emotional person. And I would argue that maybe that's not true. We all get emotional about something. We all get emotional about something. Maybe it's a sports team. Maybe it's a good movie. My friend Anton said, John, just try to watch The Lion King and not get emotional. He goes, I dare you. Maybe it's a good movie. Maybe it's the moment kids were born or the the moment you married the, the one you love. Everyone gets emotional about something. I highly doubt that if someone showed up on your doorstep this, this morning or this afternoon and, and hands you million dollars in cash that you simply with a straight f- face say, thank you, I would get more emotional, but I'm not really an emotional person. I would get excited, but I'm not emotional. I, I don't, I, we get emotional about something, whether you're an emotional person or not. We get emotional about the things we love, about the things we treasure. And so you might not get emotional about God, and perhaps that's because you don't treasure God in the way you think you do. If you don't feel anything towards God about what He has done, at worst, we might not be following Jesus. And I hope that there's someone in your life that can point out these truths and tell you, look, I know you say you believe in God, but I don't ever see you treasure the truths about Him. I know that you, you, you say you, you, you believe in God, but I don't ever see obedience to His truth and His Scripture flow out of your life. And perhaps, if this is the case, and please understand this is coming from a heart of love for our church and for you. If this is the case, maybe you're not yet a believer and at, at worst, and at best, you're missing out on the beautiful gifts and treasures that God has given you in being his son or daughter. Now, on the other hand, maybe you love the time when we gather together on Sunday and you love the music and worship and you're bobbing your head to the songs, you're raising your hands, you're weeping, you're having an emotional experience, but there's no bowing down. There's no kneeling as if to say, God, whatever you say, speak to me. Whatever you say, I will listen. I will obey. After all the emotional singing, if there is no fundamental life change in how you live, if there's no change in character, if there's no repentance of sin, if it doesn't lead you to a personal pursuit of holiness and obedience to the Scriptures, you're not worshiping. You simply had an emotional experience. And after 10 years of a youth pastor taking kids to camp every summer, more times than I'd like to admit, I've seen this over and over again, where it was this, what we called a camp high. They had an emotional experience, and they came home, and there's no repentance of sin, no life change. And it breaks my heart, because they never really saw who God is. They never completely surrendered their life to Him. And I would say here that if that's the case, if there's no life change, we're simply experiencing an emotional experience. And if that's the case, we don't know Jesus. Or worse, Jesus doesn't know us. Again, biblical worship is the full life response, head, heart, and hands to who God is and what He has done, which leads us to question number three. Why do we worship God the way we do at Grace Point Church Northwest? Now, thank you for the way you're listening. We're getting through this. We're almost there. But I would like, I'm going to take some time in this next step just to kind of share some of the reasons why our gathering is set up the way 
way it is. As pastor of liturgy, it's not very often I get an opportunity to explain what that even means. It's kind of a weird title. And so we're going to talk about that and explain why do we worship the way we do here at Grace Point Church Northwest. And so we worship corporately. We don't just privately worship God, but we gather together. Look back at verse 1 and notice who this invitation is extended to. Look at verse 1. It says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Let us. To whom is this invitation extended? I heard it. I heard it. To us. Yeah, to us. Good job. Plural. It's plural. Psalm 95 is a corporate song. It's a corporate invitation to us to come into the presence of our God with joy and wonder and awe, with humility and reverence in order to experience the joyful, humbling presence of our God. It's almost to say, look, I've tried worshiping God on my own, by myself, but God is worthy than just my mere worship. He's worthy of more, so come. He deserves all of our worship. He, bring, he deserves more worship than what I can give Him by myself. Come, let us worship God. So yes, we're called to worship God with everything that we are. But it's not only just that. We're called to worship God together. You see, the work that we do here on a Sunday morning is extremely important. It's extremely important. And I will argue that it should be a priority in the life of a follower of Jesus. That this is not a mere opportunity for us to um, get our religious goods and services but rather, we are coming together as the, as the church, as the family of God, coming before God to worship Him and praise Him. You see, here's a, here's a couple of things. Here's why our time is so important. First off, um, our gathering is liturgical. What does that mean? That's kind of a weird word, and, and it might actually bring some baggage from past church experiences. But it's, it's simple, simple. Every church has a liturgy. It's the order in which you do things. And our, ours here is, is on purpose and in particular. And, and really, the word means this. It comes from two Greek words that literally mean the work of the people. And so when we gather on a Sunday morning, we are doing a work together. Not just those singing up here or preaching up here, but it's us together. It's a work of the people. See, when it's placed in the context of a corporate worship, liturgy refers to what the congregation gathers to do. And so here at Grace Point Church Northwest, we do this in our gathering, particularly to point us to the Word of God and to God. Our liturgy each Sunday is intentionally designed to accomplish this goal. The gospel is at the center because the gospel is both at the center of, of who God is or what of who God is and what the Bible is all about. You see, the Bible is pointing us, if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you some, some things you might want to write down. The Bible is pointing us to one big story which can be broken down in four parts. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. I'm going to just give you a simple explanation of each of these. And in Genesis 1-2, through 2, we see creation. God is creating everything out of nothing and declaring that it is good. And creation sets the stage for everything else the Bible has to say. It shows us the original design for God's creation and what it could look like if we, as His people, were willing to live under God's good rule and reign and His design for our lives. 
But then in Genesis 3, we see the fall. See, sin enters the world for the first time. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating the fruit, God's design was thrown into chaos. It was humanity fell into sin. The fall introduced all kinds of new realities into God's world. Fear, shame, rejection, isolation, self-justification, death. And worst of all, there was nothing that Adam and Eve could do to bring it back to the way it was before. Likewise, there's nothing that we could do to earn God's love. Because sin kind of messed up this new, this new reality of a fallen world was here to stay. At least for a little while. Because we continue on, we see in Genesis 4, things weren't great. In fact, they got worse, right? Cain murders his brother Abel. And this begins a pattern where things just kept getting worse and worse over time. But something else is going on. Something amazing. And this is where we see redemption begin in this grand story of redemption through Scripture. God's redemption of His people makes up the majority of what Scripture is all about. God, his, God's will was often hidden in the Old Testament, but by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, it becomes clear that this was the purpose all along. This has been the plan all along. And Jesus, he arrives as the sinless lamb of God, lives the life that we should have lived, dies the death that we have deserved to die, and rises from the dead in everlasting life as both a foretaste and a guarantee that one day, one day, God's people will join Christ in the resurrection from the dead. And then finally, at the end of the story, we have restoration. Revelations chapter 21 and 22, God is making all things new a new heaven and a new earth. He's restoring all things to the original design. This means no more sin, no more shame, no more guilt, condemnation, pain, disease, suffering, death ever again. So if the gospel is at the center of this entire book, then shouldn't it be the center of what we do here on a Sunday morning as well? And I will argue that it should. You see, our worship on a Sunday morning should reflect this entire story. The gospel story meaningful and helpful way. If the gospel is supposed to be central to our lives as Christians, then we should craft what we do around this narrative, that we would rehearse this story every week. We would gather and remember that God is holy, that we are sinners, that Jesus saves us from our sins, and that's exactly what we do. And He sends us into the world to love Him and to love others. So that's how we design our gathering. That's the motive behind why we choose the songs that we choose and why we sing what we sing. To follow this pattern of Scripture by containing elements from each of these four pieces. Fall, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And here's the way we do this. And I'm almost done. You guys hanging in there? You okay? Okay. Five key elements in our gathering. I'm excited to share this with you because I get these questions all the time. Why do we do this? And we do a call to worship in the very beginning. At 10 o'clock, we have a call to worship on on the screen. And this is exactly what it, it sounds like. It's a call for God's people to worship God in the manner that He's prescribed us to. The call to worship is at the beginning of our time together because it reminds us of the beginning of creation in Genesis 1 through 2. We see that God is absolutely amazing, perfect, powerful, and good. And that He alone is worthy of our praise. Not the lesser things, but He alone is worthy of our worship. 
And the call to worship reminds us of these truths, that God is good, that He is above all gods, that He is the King. He alone deserves our worship. And I'll argue that without having a right understanding of who God is based on Scripture, we cannot have a clear understanding of the Gospel. And so we begin by recognize, recognizing who God is and what He's done. And from there we move into a song of adoration where we sing that we just from Scripture, that we just read. And after that song, we lead into a, a prayer of confession or lament with an assurance of pardon. What in the world does that mean? Well, we pray a prayer of a confession or, or lament. A prayer of confession or lament serves to remind us the reality and gravity of sin, both in our individual lives and in our world as a whole. You see, too often in, in churches today, the service is simply a way to get us excited for Jesus. And though that may be the, the, the goal for a particular Sunday, the unfortunate result is that many churches have an unrealistic view of the true darkness within us and within our world. And so our desire is not to depress anyone, but rather to admit that we're broken in need of a Savior. And that our brokenness has led many of us already to despair and depression. And rather than hiding those things and pretending that it doesn't exist, we want to embrace the biblical results and reality of our sin. So immediately following this prayer is a word of assurance from Scripture that says, maybe it's something like we did today, Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? Or maybe 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says that, that, that He made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we can stand before God in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. And so we have that uh, assurance of Scripture that speaks to the wonderful truths that God's redemption of His people has been accomplished in Jesus. And then, the hardest time of the gathering, especially for if you're like me and you're an introvert, and that's the time where you have to shake someone's hand, right? And a lot of times in, in a gathering, and in a liturgy, it's just, it's just that thing. And that's important to say hi to somebody. But, but this, this passing of the peace that we do every Sunday, there's so much weight in this. And this is really important. The passing of the peace simply means that because of God's work of redemption, we now have peace with God. And since we have peace with God, we are now able to extend peace to one another. That God is, through Jesus, He's reconciled us to God and He's reconciled us to one another. The gospel breaks down every barrier, every wall, economic, racial, whatever it might be. Every wall is broken down in the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus, 12, Mark 12, He says in, Jesus says in Mark 12, the greatest commandment is to love God with everything that you have. And the second is just like the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. See, the passing of the peace is an outworking of the reality that until you have peace with God, that you'll not, you're not going to have peace with one another. True peace. Until you have peace with God, you're not going to be able to love one another as you're called to. And so that's why we do passing of the peace. And then we sing a song of, 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 of commitment to Jesus. And then we have this time where we sit under the preaching of God's Word. And then we respond. Every week we respond with the Lord's Supper. And we do this because we believe that no matter where you are in life, everyone needs to respond the same way to the hearing of the gospel. 
to confess our sin, to repent of our selfishness, to trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And we're not saying that each and every week you need to be reconverted. That's not at all what we're saying. But instead, we're acknowledging that our need for grace never goes away. And that it's only ever by faith in Jesus that we can be made right with God. There's no, no other way to the Father. As such, by partaking in this meal together each week, we are corporately affirming that truth together. And many times you'll hear us say, if you have peace with, God, peace with each other, then come to the table. Because Paul warns us, he says, don't take this meal in an unworthy manner. And a lot of times we take this opportunity to make sure we're right with God, but I would argue that we need to also make sure that we're right with each other. Because the, the gospel has broken down the barrier between us and God, but also one another. And so if we're coming up here and we have issues with someone across the aisle, I would say we're taking this in an unworthy manner. And so there's this call where we have these tables open for the rest of the gathering for you to, to reconcile with God, with one another. It's really important. We sing some more songs, a song of, of commitment and then a song of sending. And the sending forth is our final piece, which you'll see in just a little bit. To love God. See, we worship God together, corporately, because we get more when we worship Him together. We get more of Him. I remember a, a story from an old author, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. You guys, you know those guys? And there's this other guy, I forget his name, like Richard, I think. There's three of them. They used to go to the pub and they would spend time together. They'd read scripture and hang out. And um, well, one, the other guy, Richard, he had passed away. And, and so C.S. Lewis is thinking, well, I'll get more of, of Tolkien now that it's just the two of us. And later he found out that it, he actually didn't. He got less because Richard brought more of him out. And so when we're gathered together and we're singing these truths about who God is over one another, and maybe you're here and you're not feeling particularly thankful or joyful in the moment, but you're thinking, oh yeah, God is good. Oh yeah. There's nothing I can do to earn his love, but Jesus has already done it for me. Oh yeah. Man, how awesome is God? And we begin to hear these truths sung over each other because we're doing this work together. We get more out of our time with God when we're together. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. I'm going to end here. <laughs> May we be a, a church that is moved to a biblical worship that encompasses all that we are, head, heart, and hands. May we be a people committed to being here every week to worship God together. That we would be committed to showing up to do this work together. As the text says in verse 1, Oh, come let us worship God. Let's pray.